The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened down with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not go very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was the, uh, that of those two men. Is that better? Yeah. Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> You're the best, Michael. Thanks, man. <laughs> um, yeah, if you don't already have your Bibles open to Second Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be looking at those first nine verses that Audi just read out. Uh, we've been looking at 2 Timothy for the last uh, four or five weeks. I, th- I think this is our week number five of our series. Uh, and, and this letter is short, but if, you're, if you've been paying attention, this letter packs a hell of a punch. Like every single paragraph, there's something very hard-hitting in this book. Uh, the person, just to put the th- things into perspective... The person who wrote this letter was the Apostle Paul, and he was writing this letter while he was in prison, and he was writing it at a time that he believed his death was just around the corner. Maybe months away, maybe even mere weeks away, this is when Paul was writing this letter. And he was writing this letter to a young pastor named Timothy in a church in a town called Ephesus. And he's writing this letter to Timothy, because he's heard reports that there's been division occurring in this church that Paul himself planted years earlier. Timothy is the leader of this church, and he writes to Timothy to strengthen Timothy, to encourage Timothy, to give Timothy strength by the grace of God. And, and really, it seems that the, that the issue that was going on here, uh, that these factions were forming around quite small issues, but they were blowing out to be massive issues. And Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy to strengthen him, and, and he writes in such a way that he says, the situation is so dire in Ephesus that Paul can only really conclude that these men who have risen up, these false teachers who have risen up against the gospel, who have risen up to, to promulgate this wrong, uh, propagate this wrong teaching, this false teaching, these guys were being used by Satan for his purposes. That's what Paul says in the end of chapter 2. And last week, if you were able to join us for Church Online, this is what we looked at. Last week, we looked at the fact, uh, at the situation that was occurring, that these fights and these quarrels were taking place in this church. And Paul writes this to Timothy, and he says, Hey, Timothy, don't get involved in the fight. Don't get involved in the quarrel. Don't stoop to that level. Because fighting and quarreling always sidelines the gospel. Fighting and quarreling always puts, puts the mission of the church to the side and, and draws the focus towards other things that are not worth their time. And then this, the section of Scripture that we're looking at today essentially continues that, but we get a bit more of the, of the character of these false teachers. Now, the question that this passage really is, is opening up for us this morning is, how deep does your discipleship go? 
How deep does your discipleship go? Whatever you believe about God, how much does that actually have an impact on your life? How, how deep does your discipleship go? What is, as far as what you believe, what does that impact, how does that impact your life? As a nation, we had to answer this question this past week, didn't we? It was census night on Tuesday night, and we had to answer a bunch of questions. I don't know about you, I was answering some of these questions going, I've got no idea why they want to know this, information, this particular information about me. Uh, I'm sure the people who are there in control of it, they know what they're doing. I'm sure I'm going to leave that in their capable hands. But then one of the questions had to do with, had to do with spiritual beliefs. And I'm sure, that I'm, I'm sure that it would have been for a lot of Australians, as they filled out this form, some kind of moment where they thought, yeah, what do I believe about this? And maybe it was an awkward moment or a confusing moment where they might have thought, how does that impact my life? How does whatever I believe about the spiritual world, how does that impact my life? How does our belief about God impact our lives? How does our discipleship impact the way that we might treat our spouse? How does what we believe about God impact the way that we treat the person at the checkout? How does it impact the way that we drive our cars? How does it impact the way that we even fill out our tax returns? How, does, how deep does our discipleship go. As a church here at LCC Caloundra, we exist to make and mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, that declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ for all of life. And we tag that bit on the end for all of life because of passages like these. Because in this section today, in this scripture today, we're going to see people, we're going to bear witness to people who their discipleship only goes skin deep. People whose they have the appearance of godliness, but actually deny the power of God. On the outside, they looked like model Christians. They did Christian things. They said Christian things. They acted like Christians. They prayed Christian prayers. But inside, they were denying God's power in their lives. How, how, how do we actually handle that? And what does Timothy have to do in response and the way that we're going to approach this passage this morning, we're going to approach this passage really just in the two parts that we get it in. And so there's two kind of clear sections here, and these sections are joined together by this imperative from Paul to Timothy, where he says, avoid such people. And so part one is the first reason why Timothy should avoid these false teachers, which is they lead ungodly lives. And part two is the second reason why, Paul should have, why Timothy should avoid these people, and that is because they lead ungodly ministries. So those are the two parts. These false teachers, they lead ungodly lives, and secondly, they lead ungodly ministries. Who they were and what they did was both rotten. Now, for the first five verses of this, of this passage, uh, we get, Paul lays out a pretty grim description of these false teachers. And we're going to take this bit in two parts. So in verse 1, Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, that word difficulty, it's a bit of an understatement. Like, long division is difficult. At least it is for me. I don't think I've done long division since maybe grade eight. I don't even know if long division exists anymore. I don't even know if it existed then. It seemed like magic to me that it happened. I don't understand it. Long division is difficult. Reverse parking a car with a trailer on the back, that's difficult. Trying to get a kid to eat all of their vegetables, that's difficult. 
But the, 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 the word that Paul uses here, it can be translated as difficult, but it also can mean dangerous. The, the same word is used in Matthew chapter 8, where it describes the two demon-possessed men in the Gadarenes, and it actually says that coming out of the tombs, these men were so fierce, that's the same Greek word, they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Like, you know, you hear about streets that you just shouldn't go down because they're dangerous. They represent some kind of physical danger. That's what this, that's what the area, this area of Gadara was like. And this is the same word that Paul uses to describe these particular men, these particular people, that they are dangerous. And it's not so much that they represent some kind of physical danger to Timothy, but more of a spiritual danger. It's of the evil that lurks within. That, that makes a lot of sense. If you consider the way that Timothy finishes off uh, the, last, the last part of chapter 2, where he talks about these men being puppets of Satan. Uh, and before we go on, we also need to talk here about that phrase, that, that term, the last days. The last days is a really common expression in the New Testament to describe the time period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. It's, it's the, the time span that, that, that goes across the, between, from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. Yes, there will be one particular last day. There will be a last day where Jesus will return. And those who have put their faith in him, those who trust in Jesus, they will be gathered together with him. They will enter into the new heavens and into the new earth, and it's going to be fantastic. But these days that we're living in are the last days. Often uh, I get asked a lot, particularly these days, particularly everything, with everything that's going on in the world at the moment, people often ask me, do you think we're in the last days right now? And I often say the same thing, <clears throat> yes, we have been for the last 2,000 years. This is, this is the last days. Now, I know that doesn't fully answer that question for some people. What they mean is, do you think we're getting pretty close, though, to that last day? And my answer to that is, maybe, but we don't know. We don't know when the last day is going to be. It could be tomorrow. It could be this afternoon. Jesus could, back, could come back by the time I finish this sentence. Obviously not. Like it's, It hasn't happened yet. We don't know when that's going to be. It could be in another 400 years. It could be in another 2,000 years. We don't know that. In fact, Jesus himself says, I don't even know that. And that's important because it means that when Paul says, in these last days, he's not just talking about his last days, and he's not just talking about the last days that are strictly for our future, he's talking about days that are, in, that, that are all of those things, everything in between. It includes the days that Timothy lived in, and includes the days that you and I currently live in. We live in the overlap of the two ages where we currently can experience the joy of salvation and life in Jesus Christ where that is available to us. And yet at the same time, we also live in a time where the world has yet, not yet been fully redeemed from the curse of sin, hence the pain and the troubles that we go through. It's what theologians refer to as the now but not yet or the already but not yet. The kingdom of God came with Jesus Christ. And it will be consummated at the second coming of Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And this means that when Timothy read this letter for the very first time, it is just as applicable to him then as it is to us today. That in these last days, there will be times of difficulty. There will be times of difficulty. Times of difficulty typify these last days. It's normal. 
Difficulty is normal for these last days. Times of difficulty, are they painful? Yes, absolutely. Are they excruciating? Yes, absolutely. Do we find ourselves struggling under the weight of these things sometimes? All the time. Is it totally out of the ordinary? No, not at all. Times of difficulty typify these last days. The pain that we experience right now is appointed to the fact that there will come a time where the pain will be no more. And we will actually, there will come a day where we will see Jesus face to face. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that incredible? There's going to come a time where for those who are in Jesus, we'll actually get to see Jesus' beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous face. And, and every single difficult thing that we've endured, every single season of life that we've walked through will all make sense as soon as we see Jesus, as soon as we see the light of his glory and grace. <clears throat> when we see Jesus, everything sad will come untrue. A lifetime of heartache and pain will melt away and will be perfectly understood inside of a minute of seeing Jesus face to face. Often we say something like, and I say this often as well, and it comes particularly when we're walking through a tough time, that when we're going through this tough time, we'll say something like, you know, when I get to heaven, I've got some questions for God. I've got some questions for God. I want to ask him some questions. I've got, I want him to answer why he took me through this tough time. Now, that might be the case, but I actually have been thinking about that this week and thinking, actually... I think our answer is going to be given to us the moment that we see Jesus' face. As soon as we see him, he's going to be making eye contact with us and there's going to be a smile on his face and holes in his hands and delight in his eyes as he opens his arm and embraces us into eternity, to spend eternity with him. We're going to look at him and we're going to go, okay, yeah, sure, worth it. That's how beautiful and wonderful Jesus Christ is. Think about this. What has stressed you this week? What has made you shake your head in dismay this week? What has brought tears to your eyes this week? What has been excruciating for you this past week? What has infuriated you this past week? What has depressed you this past week? What has uh, discouraged you this past week? What has exacerbated you this past week? Think about those things. Dwell on those things. What has been difficult for you this last week? Know that every single week, for every single day of your entire life, all the the times of difficulty will melt away as soon as we see Jesus. And so when Paul talks of these last days, it's a subtle reminder to us that one one of these last days will be the last day. The last day, and Jesus will return on that day. And it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be incredible. So what was the uh, difficulty for Timothy's situation in particular? What was the thing for Timothy that was causing this difficulty? Well, it was that there were some people in this church, these false teachers who were rising up, and they had the appearance of godliness, but on the inside, they were the opposite. So Paul goes on uh, from verse 2 to verse 5 to list 18 pretty horrible character traits. Like, do you remember that movie, 10 Things I Hate About You? Well, this is 18 things that Paul hates about these false teachers. These are 18 things that are horrible character traits about these false teachers. Now, all of these traits, they're fairly self-explanatory. We're not going to go into huge amounts of detail with every single one of them. So, lovers of self, 
means that they love themselves. They're self-centered. Lovers of money, they're greedy. Proud, they, they boast about themselves. When it says they're arrogant, it means that they're arrogant. Abusive, that word is blasphemous and slanderous and evil. Disobedient to their parents means uncompliant to those to whom they should comply. Ungrateful means they're just unthankful. They've been given wonderful things and they don't think to say thank you. They just, yeah, of course I get that. I'm special. Unholy means wicked, heartless. They've got no affection. They've got no compassion for somebody who needs it. Unappeasable means they're unforgiving and they can't reconcile. Slanderous, that word is actually devilish. Without self-control, unable to stem desires but are instead compulsive. Brutal means they are harsh with their self-centeredness. Not loving good, loving evil instead. Treacherous means they're disloyal, reckless, they're rash and they're thoughtless, swollen with conceit. They are so full of themselves, they love themselves so much that actually they just swell up, they just love, I'm just so perfect, I'm just so wonderful. Life is grand because I am so wonderful. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, it's all about me. I'm at the center of the universe. If someone is going to be at the center of the universe, it's not God, it's going to be me. It's a pretty horrible list, right? But there's nothing particularly redeemable about this list. Can you imagine being in church with these people? Can you imagine being in life group with some of these people? Now, now that could kind of like concern us, but actually the thing that should concern us the most is what he says in, in verse 5. He says, avoid such people. Like, avoid such people? I feel like I know such people. <laughs> should I be avoiding them? Like, I don't know about you, I read this list and some names start to come to my mind. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I work with some of these people. I, I live with some of these people. I've given birth to a couple of these people. Like, you know, we can kind of look at this list and we go, wow, this is, we can, we can look at that. But actually, this is probably one of those times as well where the Bible functions more like a mirror than anything else. Because if we're honest, each, each one of us sit fairly squarely inside of that list. Ungrateful? Yeah, that's me. Like, I, I, I try to be grateful, but man, there are plenty of times where I just assume that what I have and the blessings that I have are because I was so clever or because I earned that. Unable to forgive? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes there are times where I, I think, actually, actually, I've done pretty well. I've, I've actually uh, forgiven that person, but then I realize that I'm still holding on to grudges for sometimes things that are, are well, and well and truly years past. Greedy? Yeah, that's me. Swollen with conceit? Yeah, sometimes far more than I would like to admit. And so here's a question. Is Paul saying that everyone who has ever committed any one of these sins or who struggles with this kind of sin should be avoided? No, not at all. Because if we follow that logic, then Paul should be avoided because he's the one who says to Timothy in his first letter, hey, Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. And if, the, or if everybody who struggles with this kind of sin should be avoided... That means you all should be avoided and I should be, we should avoid ourselves. Is that what Timothy, is that what Paul is saying here? I think not. And I think we can say that because of what verse 5 says. The rest of verse 5, he says, These people have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. 
And that's probably the most important verse here. These people are very good at putting on a really good show for the world around them. Look how godly I am. Listen to my prayers. Look at, look at the way I speak. Look at the way I act. Look at how godly I am. But then inside, they are denying the power of God. They, they are using their exterior moral behavior not just to cover up, but also to justify the, in, the inward sin. You see, a Christian is not merely someone who acts like a Christian. Like if you're here and, and you're not a Christian this morning, first of all, we are really glad that you're here and you might need to hear this. A Christian is not someone who just acts like a Christian. A Christian is also someone, not someone who has joined some kind of morality club where continued membership is reliant upon your good behavior. A Christian is someone who has come to God expecting God to do what they could not do on their own, namely remove their sin from them. I, I came across this really great quote by J.I. Packer this week. He says, Grace is, moving heaven, is, is God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Grace is God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. A Christian is someone who has recognized that they are a sinner. They recognize that their sin has been committed against the God of the universe, but instead of running away from God, they run to him instead, banking on his love, banking on his grace, banking on his mercy to save them from his wrath against their sin. And if that's you, if you've done that before, then you will have found yourself the recipient of God's grace. You will find yourself the recipient of God's love and you are on a journey of continually exploring and understanding more and more just how much God loves you. Just how great his grace is towards you. Just how wonderful his mercy is. Like the prodigal son who expects his father to smack him across the face as soon as he gets home. He instead sees his father running towards him. And instead of his father punching him in the nose, he embraces his son. He puts a ring on his son's finger. He puts a robe over his son's shoulders. And he throws a huge party for the son, all the while absorbing the debt of his son's folly. This is the God who we serve. This is the God who we love. He is rich in grace, rich in mercy. You and I do not deserve the love of God. We don't deserve, we can't earn the mercy or the grace of God. And yet, when we come to Jesus, we have exactly that. We have the mercy of God. We have the, the love of God. We have the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We get that from Jesus. And so a Christian, then and only then, and if we get that order mixed around, we, we come into a whole lot of error there. Only then, do, then does a Christian respond to God's kind mercy, his unending love and his breathtaking grace in glad, joyful, willing, diligent and increasing obedience to all that God commands. The love of grace that we have is something that comes to us in a free gift. The love of God that we have is such a wonderful thing. So let's just ask two questions just to clarify this. Do you have to be a good person to become a Christian? No, you don't. In fact, the only prerequisite on you is your sin. Jesus said this in Luke 5. I'm just paraphrasing. He says, if you are not sick, then you don't need a doctor. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
I love the way that Eugene Peterson phrases this in the message. He says, I'm not here inviting outsiders, I'm inviting insiders. Do you have to be a good person to become a Christian? No, absolutely not. Second question, do you have to be a good person once you become a Christian? Let me answer that with another question. Why the heck wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to obey Jesus once you've received his grace? If you consider who God is and what he went through to save us, if you consider just how wonderful God is, how how huge and mighty and all-knowing and all-powerful he is, that he sent his son to die for us in a great act of love to save us so that we could come and be with him for eternity in heaven, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to obey every single thing that Jesus that Jesus obeys us to do. I've been reading uh, in John, John's Gospel lately, and I came, on Wednesday morning I came across in John 14, just this verse that I've read so many times, but I just came across it and it was one of those just like fresh eyes, fresh revelation again on, on Wednesday morning. John 14, 2-3. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. Now, that's striking. That's incredible. Jesus is saying, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. And if there weren't many rooms, I wouldn't tell you about it. But the fact that I am telling you about it means that there are many rooms in my Father's house. And I'm going there. And when I go there, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we're not going to live in the same street. We're going to live in the same house, in my father's house, where there are many rooms. And I'm going to prepare your room. And then I am going to, if I do that, I am going to come and I I am going to get you and I'm going to take you to be with my father. Why, Jesus? Why would you do that? He says there at the end of verse 3, so that we can be together. So that where I am, you may be also. I mean, just consider this. Like, we only allow people to live with us, those who we, we love, right? Like, th- that's, a, that's a huge thing that Jesus says, I want to spend eternity with you. I, I want to be with you for eternity. It's the wonderful thing that Jesus actually wants to spend eternity with us. And let's just consider the context. A few verses earlier, a few moments before Jesus said this, he had said to Peter, Hey, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny that you had anything to do with me at least three times. That's huge, right? Jesus is about to die, die for his disciples, die for his people. And he says, I'm doing that so I can go and prepare a place for you. That's how great and wonderful God's love is for you. If Jesus is who he says he is, why wouldn't you want to do anything but gladly obey him? Why wouldn't you want to do anything but gladly obey every single thing that comes from the mouth of God? See, Christians, we we obey God's commands not because we have to to become part of God's family or not because we have to to remain part of God's family. We obey God's commands because we get to because he's brought us into his family. A number of years ago, I was 19 or 20, um, for some reason I got the opportunity to house it for a bunch of people. It was like this one year I housed it for like three or four different families. Sometimes it was two, three, two or three days, sometimes it was up to four weeks. And I did this thing every single time I house it for somebody. And uh, 
in each household there was a place where they had like all the family photos. So they would have like, you know, mum and dad and kids or whatever it is, the house and trip to Paris or whatever it is. And I started doing this little prank thing where I would get a photo of myself and frame it in a nice, try and get a frame that's similar to their frames and I would just sneak it into their family photos and just see how long it would take for them to notice. And so like, there was this one family, they had this really beautiful cabinet with like glass doors and they had all their family photos and their trip to Paris and the trip of their, like, photos of their dog and all this kind of stuff. And the picture of me at my formal doing some of these ones, um, like just hanging out. And, then, and sometimes people would notice straight away, like I'd get a text within like 10 seconds of them getting home, like, yep, we found it. Um, other times there was people like six months later, like, hey, guess what we just found? And um, yeah, it was a photo of me on, on their wall, a photo of me somewhere in their house that they hadn't actually noticed. And it's kind of like you go into the father's house and you see a picture of Jimmy on the wall. And Jesus, who's this guy? Is, is this a relation to you? Jesus says, yeah, he's part of, the, part of the family. How is he related to you? By my blood. That's how we're related to Jesus, by his blood, that he brings us into his family. That's the wonderful good news of the gospel. This is the power of God. This is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God to save sinners. And so can you see why Paul is so audacious, so out there to say that these false teachers are denying the power of God by, by having this external appearance of godliness, but using it to cover up the inward ungodliness inside of them. Paul is saying they are using that to mess, they, they are using that to cover up the mess. They are denying the goodness and the power of God to save and sanctify us. See, these, these false teachers, these people in this list, they weren't just stuffing up a little bit. They weren't wrestling with their sin. These are people who had made peace with their sin. These are people who had looked at their sin and gone, it's okay. I'm okay with living that way. They, they, weren't, they were denying the very love and grace of God towards sinners by, by saying, actually, I'm okay with my sin. They were granting sin safe passage in their souls. And by only letting their discipleship go skin deep, they were denying the problem of their sin and so denying the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for that sin. This is a pretty important thing for us as Christians to take into account. We've got to be so careful about any inclination to deny the power of God to actually save us. Now, it probably won't sound anything like that. We probably won't actually say something like, well, I'm going to deny the power of God to save me. We probably actually won't do that. It'll probably come across in a, in a phrase like, yeah, okay, I've got some sin in my life, but I'm not that bad. Like, I'm not Hitler. <laughs> yes, I've got some sin in my life, but I'm not... I'm not that bad. I haven't murdered anybody. Yeah, okay, I've got some sin in my life, sure, but look at all the good that I do. By doing that, what we're doing is we're saying, yes, okay, I'm a sinner, but just leave my sin alone. Just let it be there. Friends, that's a denial of the power of God to save us. That's a denial of the, of the gospel to actually sanctify us and make us more and more like Jesus. And if that's you, if you're doing that, then there is such great good news for you in Jesus Christ. There is such good news for you in the fact that Jesus Christ opens his arms to you. He just, Jesus Christ opens his hands to you and say, says, come and put your trust in me again. If we've got sin in our hearts, if we've got sin in our lives, we've got to go to war with that. 
We've got to put our sin to death. We've got to, as John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So that's the first reason why Timothy is told by Paul to avoid these false teachers. They will do nothing but hurt and harm the congregation with their watered-down version of the gospel. The second reason why Paul tells Timothy to avoid such people is because they lead ungodly ministries. So... Timothy directs them, so Paul directs Timothy to the fruit of their ministry. And we've got to admit, in this next part, in verses 6 to 9, this gets a little bit weird. Okay, so let's just read it again. He says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able, able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now Paul was speaking about a specific scenario that was specific to that church in Ephesus at the time. It seemed that the two ringleaders of these false teachers, this group of people who were opposing Timothy, opposing the gospel, uh, Philetus and Hermogenes, we learned about them last week, these guys, it seems, were creepers. Like literally creeping into homes, uh, worming their way into homes. And they were targeting people who were particularly gullible, which in this case were women who were heavily burdened with their own sins and easily led astray, Always learning, so like always kind of looking for the new fads, whatever the latest craze, but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. Now, that is not a description of what Paul thinks of women in general. And we only have to go back to chapter 1 and read what he writes about Timothy's grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice, and how such high praise he has for those two women. This is not what Paul thinks of women in general. It's just that in, in this particular situation, it's a, it's a description of the specific women in that church who had been captured by this false teaching. And apparently, there was quite a bit of momentum with this. There was a bit of success with this. So not only did Timothy have to uh, contend with these false teachers who were saying that the resurrection had already happened, he also had to contend with the unnerving reality that these false teachers and this group in the church was actually flourishing and gaining some kind of momentum. And it's so important then for Timothy to hear what Paul has to say about this because he might start to doubt the ministry that he's been given. He might start to doubt the thing that God has called him to do. When he sees the success of someone else's ministry, he might go, maybe I should be doing things that way. You see, a church ought to be committed to what the church has been called to do, to make disciples, to reach people with the gospel, to reach uh, those outside the family of God with the gospel to preach the full counsel of God's word, to love one another, to support and care for one another, to do acts of love and mercy and justice, just to name a few things. And the church needs to be so committed to doing that that it, that it can't be distracted and pulled away by the latest fads, the latest trends, the latest things that promise some kind of results. Because the church doesn't play a short game. The church plays a very long game spanning years and decades and generations and lifetimes. That's the game the church is playing. We're looking for fruit that will last. We're, we're trying to grow. We're, we're, we're in the business of fruit that will last. And this is why Paul mentions these two guys, Janus and Jambres. Janus and Jambres 
they are not mentioned. They're talking, he's talking about them against Moses. They're not actually mentioned in our Bibles, in our English version of, the, of our Bibles, but they are mentioned in the ancient Jewish writings. And these guys were two of the court magicians who opposed Moses when Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh to uh, ask them to let, um, to, to let the Israelites go free from slavery in Egypt. Now, um, if you've ever watched the movie The Prince of Egypt, these guys were probably represented by those two guys, Hotep and Hoy, who um, that we think, I think that's probably uh, who's, who they're representing in this particular film. And if you haven't watched The Prince of Egypt, I can recommend it to you. It's a great cast, like Steve Martin and Martin Short, really, really great. So te- 10 out of 10 for cast, probably 6 out of 10 for biblical accuracy, but 10 out of 10, it's a really entertaining movie, so I encourage you to watch it just for that means. But he mentions these guys, and... and, and for a long time, what these court magicians did was always really confusing to me because they seemed to be able to do just as good as what Moses could do. So when God calls Moses out, of, out in the desert to take the people out of Egypt, he tells them to take his staff, and by his staff, God was going to do wondrous deeds before him. And Moses and his brother Aaron, they came before Pharaoh, and one of the first signs that Aaron did was that his, his staff turned into a serpent. And then the court magicians, they performed the same trick and their staffs were turned into serpents as well. They could do the same thing. And yes, Aaron's staff went and, and ate the other serpents, which in and of itself, I don't understand the logistics of how one snake can eat two snakes. It just that boggles me, but that's what it says. And so it's this really weird thing, but you kind of look at that and you're like, okay, this is like, it's not a great start, Moses. Like, you know, it's, these guys can do the same thing. And then comes the first plague of frogs and, and, and the, uh, sorry, of the, turning the Nile River into, into blood. And Moses is commanded by God to go and strike the river Nile and the water is turned to blood. And then the court magicians, by their dark arts, they're able to, to do this exact same thing. And then it comes to the frogs and, and they, they, there's this plague of frogs come. And then these court magicians, they're able to do the same thing. And if you're reading through, you're going, hey, maybe this God isn't actually so powerful. If, Mo, if he's this God who's meant to rescue them out of Egypt and he's coming in, but then these other men can do the same thing, maybe this God isn't actually that powerful. But then come the gnats. And when it comes to the gnats, these guys, are, they, they can't do it. They can't perform the same trick. They can't do the same thing. They actually say in chapter 8, yeah, this is beyond us. This is the finger of God. And as you read on... Janice and Jambres, they slowly slip into the background. And the last thing that we actually hear of Janice and Jambres is in the sixth plague where they actually they get covered in boils. All these court magicians, they get covered in boils with the sixth plague. And then we hear of them no more. And the reason why is because they could not compete with the God of the universe. That he was far more powerful than that. And it didn't just stop with the gnats or the boils. It went on and it went on and it went on. God displaying his glory in his righteous judgment against Egypt. And the reason why Paul brings these names to Timothy's attention, he's like, listen, look at those guys, these court magicians who seem to be able to pull off the same kind of stuff as you. Their ministry, if you will, seemed to have the same kind of fruit, but after a while their folly was seen to awe. So Timothy, when you're thinking about these false teachers as they're rising up in the church, think about those guys because there's going to come a time when the false teaching will be seen for what it truly is, false. That's, that's the future of this false ministry. Paul doesn't want Timothy to be distracted or tempted by any superficial met- metrics of ministry success. 
This is, this is why, and we're going to look at this in the weeks to come, but this is why Paul tells Timothy over and over and over again in this letter to come to God's Word, to preach God's Word, to, to fulfill the ministry of God's Word. Chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, work hard at rightly handling the Word of truth. Chapter 1, verse 24, the Lord's servant must be kind to everyone, able to teach. Chapter 3, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, and you from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writing. Then in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God, preach the word, Timothy. Then Paul sums this up in chapter 4, verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, don't be distracted by what's actually going on around you. Don't be distracted by the fruit of these false teachers because that is not fruit that is going to last. Don't be distracted by what they're doing. Do what you have been called to do. No matter how successful a person looks, it's not a sign of God's power working within them. Isn't that a trap that we so often fall into? We look at the prosperity of someone, our neighbor, someone else, and we go, man, God must really love them. They must be doing something right. The reality is that God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on all people. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, don't be swayed by the outward appearance of those who have clearly denied the faith. Stay the course. Do the work of the ministry that you've been called to do. Rightly handle the word of truth. Preach Christ crucified and resurrected and be strengthened by grace. How often are we tempted to look at someone else's prosperity and think, well, God must really love that person. And then we try to do what they're doing, we try to replicate what they're doing in order to try and get that kind of prosperity. And all the while neglecting what God has called us to do. And this is probably a good time for us to stop and ask, what has God called, called you to do? What is the, the ministry or the mission that God has called you to? Who are the people in your life who God has called you, God is asking you to, to go to them with the gospel of grace? God, go to them with God's love and tell them how much God loves them and his love, his kindness was what they need to, to, call, to, turn, them to turn them towards him in repentance. Who is, who is that in your life? Each one of us is called to make disciples. Who are you discipling? That person probably already lives in your street. They probably already work in your office. They probably already make your coffees for you. Who, who are you doing that? What is your mission? What is your ministry in life? Maybe it's something a bit more uh, programmed. Maybe it's like teaching RI in, in a primary school or being involved with school chaplaincy or getting involved in some kind of mission, some kind of ministry in some respect somewhere. What has God called you to? What is the ministry that God has called you to do? And are you doing it? Yeah. As a, if you're a Christian, then you've been called in these last days to make disciples. Are you doing that? Does your, does your discipleship go deep enough that you'll gladly submit to the God who calls you, the God who loves you, the God who sent his son to die for you? Are you willing for your life to be taken captive, for your life to be interrupted by God's mission in your life, by what he's called you to do? You see, we've been given everything in Jesus Christ, and we have everything to gain from serving Jesus Christ with our entire lives, from letting our discipleship to go deep, 
We've got everything to gain from letting the gospel go deep into, into our lives, to letting God's, God, the, God, the, the power of God to go deeper than just skin deep, to actually go, what are the areas of my life that actually need addressing in my life? What's the sin that I've been carrying for too long? What's the sin that I've been putting up for too long? Let's trust in the life that God promises and submit our lives to him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.